Well, every profession has its own challenges and struggles. It's all unique to that profession. I mean, those who work in factories often deal with the boredom of just routine work and the monotony that comes with that and the long days that result. Those who work on manual labor jobs deal with the difficulties of just physical exhaustion of just pouring themselves out day in and day out. Those who work the night shift deal with the difficulties of sleeplessness that comes as the sun is down all night long and they want to be sleeping rather than being awake. Those who are in management deal with the stresses that come with people. And those who are in upper management deal really with the stresses of turning a profit in a large corporation. Those in sales deal with the disappointment of hearing no, no, no. So many times they're not buying their product. And those moms who are at home deal with the struggles of the exhausting work of children. In fact, that my daughter even found that out this week. I, you know, as your kids get older, you'll find this more, parents. This is a warning to all you with younger children, that you'll find out about your children who are living at home with you through Facebook. And uh, Carissa wrote about how exhausting the day was as she babysat the molders all day long just with two kids, Austin and Parker, who are two and two and four months or something like that. Every, every profession has its difficulties. And the same is true of the ministry. Those in the ministry face their own peculiar dangers. Uh, Artaxerxes wrote about them in his contribution to his book, to the book Reforming Pastoral Ministry. He, he just put some temptations which are particularly strong to the pastoral ministry. He said, To be sure, the minister of the Gospel is vulnerable to trials and temptations distinct to his calling. And he just listed a few. And maybe I'll just read them off a little bit and then comment on them. One is jealousy. That's big in the ministry. See someone else's gifts as, as greater than yours. And the, the, um, the temptation is to say and plead to God, why are His gifts greater than mine? Or bitterness. Right? When, when some pastors are in a congregation which criticizes everything the pastor does. The bitterness that results. I'm thankful that's not where we are here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Or, or a fear, particularly a fear of what's taught. If I teach particular redemption, will people leave the church? It's true of many pastors. Thankful I'm free of that. You all have been raised just Bible. You want the Bible, and so I'm thankful for that. But depression is true of many pastors. When the church doesn't grow, just pleading the Lord, will this church ever grow? Or grief. Right? Why are there so few conversions in the church? Why, why are things not working and progressing like I want them to? Or, or frustration. Why does the board seem to distrust all of my ideas and suggestions? Doubt. Why has God caused this suffering in the life of this family? If God is good, why is this happening? Anxiety. There's financial anxiety about how will we ever afford to send our children to college? Or sexual indiscretion. Why does it seem my wife is not as responsive to me as other women in the church? Or despondency. Why doesn't this congregation love Jesus with greater fervor? Depression. Have I rightly discerned my call to ministry? Desperation. And, and so I just say, but quite honestly, I've faced many of these temptations at Rock Valley Bible Church. Not all of them, certainly. Some of them, none at all. Some stronger than others. And let me just say that 
you know, before I was in the ministry, I worked in the secular world, the computer world, and uh, faced few of these temptations. And those I faced were, were weak at best. But since taking on a role of full-time pastor, these type of temptations come, have come in a, in a greater way, become very real. And I, I think it's because the nature of the ministry. And I know all of you and your jobs and environment can associate with some of these, but it is particularly true, I think, of the ministry. And I believe that the root of all of these are an underlying discouragement that the ministry brings. Discouraged by a lack of gifts, which leads to jealousy of others. Discouraged by the criticism which comes, which often leads to bitterness. Um, heard a man this week talking about just trials in the church. It's a large church. He said, yeah, we are a church of 4,000. And through this crisis of the, the church, he said, I feel like there are 8,000 different opinions. And he says, I know because I felt them all this week in my emails. And he talked about, he was criticized for doing this. And then he was criticized for the, doing the exact opposite things. And uh, all his friends are criticizing him from every direction. He said, I think I have too many friends. So he said, I think I just want to go out and buy a dog who's going to love me unconditionally. What he said a couple of weeks ago in a sermon that I heard on the internet, and this criticism constantly is true of the church. Often, people are discouraged by a lack of doctrinal unity, which leads to fear people might leave, or criticized by, or discouraged by lack of numbers, which leads to depression, or discouraged by lack of souls being saved, which leads to grief, or discouraged by lack of relational unity among the church, or among the pastor of others, and that leads to frustration, and so on, and so on, and so on it goes. But I do believe the bottom line temptation in the ministry is discouragement. Um, I remember a former pastor telling the joke. He says, if you speak with three pastors, you're going to find that one is discouraged, one is ready to quit, and the third, which is having a successful booming ministry, is no help to the other two. Now, that's a joke, but there's an element of truth to that, of just a widespread discouragement among many pastors and I think that that was a, uh, a struggle with Timothy, after whom the book of Second Timothy was named. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Second Timothy. We began this book last week by developing a, work, a working theme for this book. It's called Fan the Flame and Fight the Fight. There it is right up there. Two core pieces of uh, advice that Paul is giving to Timothy. Fan the flame of the ministry. Don't be discouraged. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the suffering that's involved, but trust in the power of God to help you through and, and fan the flame in that way to fulfill your ministry. But the second one is fight the fight. In other words, don't quit. Be willing to suffer as Jesus did. Fulfill your ministry until the end. Well, this morning, we're going to delve into really that first part of, of our, our theme here, fan the flame. In fact, I was really close to entitling my sermon, Fan the Flame, which would, which would work, okay. But I just thought to change it a little bit, particularly dealing with this issue of discouragement, which I think is the issue for Timothy here. Because here we see in verses 3-7 through seven of chapter 1, Paul's helping this discouraged pastor find power to fulfill his ministry. Let's read the verses now. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7. through seven. I thank God... Paul writes, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, 
so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would take my words, open them up to us. May we swim in Your text. May we see what I say is what the Bible says. May we find encouragement for our souls today. I pray You take this message and apply it to people who aren't in ministry in a full-time sense, but all of us who have been saved by the blood of Christ certainly are to be engaged in serving others and pouring out our life towards others and being involved in the, the ministry in some regard. So encourage us, O Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the title of my message this morning, you can see it there on your notes in your bulletin, if you have those, is Encouraging the Discouraged. Because that's what's going on here in these verses. Paul's seeking to help Timothy find the strength he needs to continue in the ministry. By way of outline this morning, uh, I, I could have just looked at what Paul did to encourage the discouraged people. But I wanted to take each of those and twist them into an application for all of us of how you all can encourage discouraged people. By the way, that's an applicational outline we'll get into Paul, but it is a way to bring the message into you as well. Because the same thing that Paul did with Timothy, you can do with others as well, and thereby be a Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. First point here, Paul in verse 3 expressed his thankfulness for Timothy. And so my point here is this, express your thankfulness. When you find someone who's discouraged, express your thankfulness to God for them. That's what Paul did, right? Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. And, And Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I am thankful to God for you. I'm constantly remembering you in my prayers. I'm praying for you in the nighttime. I'm praying for you in the daytime. A day doesn't go by that I don't pray for you. A night doesn't go by that I don't pray for you. You are on my heart all the time. I am thankful to God for His work in your life. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And I just say for you while expressing your thanks to God for others, a great way to encourage people. Because those who are discouraged oftentimes lose sight of the big picture of life. I mean, they think that life is all about them and their problems. And yes, problems are big and they're hard, but, but they can think about their whole life as that. And they miss, they miss the big picture. I, I saw a picture on the internet recently. It drew a picture of the sun and drew a picture of the earth compared to the sun. And, and it's like if the, if the earth was a big beach ball, and if the sun is a big beach ball, the earth is like less than a pea. And the sun is one of billions of stars in this galaxy, and our galaxy is one of billions of galaxies. And so they're umpteen stars, and we are little people on this little planet drifting through space, and oftentimes people who are discouraged see their problems as huge and monstrous, but when you start thanking God for them, they start seeing the big picture about who God is and what He's done and doing in their lives, and helps to give perspective and I say, when someone comes along and says, I'm thankful to God for you, it can make a, a big difference in someone's, someone's life. It says, there's more to life than my particular problems. Because Timothy had his problems. That's for sure. That's why he was so discouraged. 
He had problems in the church. People were resisting Timothy at every step. Just like the, the magicians and people resisted Moses, so also people in his church resisting Timothy as well. There are those in the church teaching false doctrine. Teaching false things. There are those in the church who held a form of godliness on the outside, but they lacked the power. They didn't know, they didn't have the reality of the risen Christ in them living. But everything was external. And to a pastor, that's, that's discouraging. Because everything's a show. Rather than being genuine out of the heart, longing for God from the heart. In the church, there were those who were wrangling about words, which Paul says leads to the ruin of the hearers. They're arguing just about words and semantics and missing the big point. Paul says the goal of our teaching is love from pure conscience and sincere faith. There are those in the church who are engaged in worldly and empty chatter. Right? Just talking about the things of the world rather than talking about the things of God which brought further ungodliness into the church. There were quarrels in the church. People were quarreling with Timothy, wanting to have a fight with him all, all the time. And there, there were those in the church who were deceiving others and, and dragging them away. And I say, all these things discourage Timothy. I'd be discouraged too. That was the reality of Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm thankful it's not. But if that was, it'd be discouraging. But that's just in the church. Outside of the church, there was plenty of pressures as well. We find in chapter 4, verse 14, about this man named Alexander, who was a coppersmith, maybe a wealthy man, maybe one in the trades. And he opposed our teaching. Paul told him, be on guard against him yourself. Because he's coming in trying to, trying to attack, vigorously opposing the gospel, facing pressures inside the church, facing pressures outside the church is no reason why we can't see why Paul Timothy was discouraged there at Ephesus of the church. And Paul says this to Timothy, Timothy, I thank God for you. Constantly praying for you. Now remember Paul's circumstances. He's in prison. I talked about it before. I'll talk about this later. It's probably a big, stinky, dirty, filthy, unsanitary pit. It's a dungeon. He's lonely. He's been deserted. He's cold. He's soon to die. And even if you read into verse 3, you can even see his sufferings there a little bit. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. And you say, what's that about? Whenever you study the Bible... Every phrase has a purpose. All Scripture, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, is inspired by God. That doesn't mean most Scripture. That means all of it has been breathed out by God. Not a phrase in the Bible is an accident. Jesus even argued in Matthew 22, upon the tense of a verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a present tense. He argued the resurrection from that. Even the tenses of verbs, the, the, the number, whether plural or singular, it all makes a difference. And so here, Paul, by talking about having a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, has a reason. So you say, what's the reason? Well, I'm going to make a guess at it. Can't get totally behind the mind of Paul, but I, I do think I've, I've got a, a beat on what's happening here. Think about it here. Paul's in prison because the Jews are angry with him because he's preaching Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, they contend that he's blaspheming. And he's causing riots. And the trials that he faced has all been around that claim. Paul says, Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews say he's not. Jesus says, is, and Paul says, is too. And they say, is not, is too, is not. And when it's one against the established religious establishment, you're in trouble. 
And so the Jews went to the Romans who imprisoned him and, and he's in jail. Jews consider Paul a heretic who ought to be killed. And, and when you read through the book of Acts, you can read it again and again and again of Paul's, of Paul's defense before people. And I think what Paul is doing is in his mind he's just rehearsing this. No, I, I have a clear conscience before God. I, I'm serving God just like our forefathers did. I'm in continuity with all the Old Testament. In fact, when he was before all these people, that's what I was saying. He said, I'm following the Old Testament Scriptures. Do you hear me? I'm following the Scriptures. They're anticipating Jesus. They all point to Him and I have found Him and He's the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in Him. He's the One. He appeared to me on the road to Damascus and He's the One that you should follow. They didn't want that. Listen to what he said before Felix, the governor in front of the Jews who are accusing him. He says, This I admit to you, that according to the way, that's Christianity, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and what's written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men, he's talking about the Jews, they cherish themselves, that there should certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, he says, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. He says, I'm just living the same way our forefathers did. I've got the same hope and I have a clear conscience. So I'm standing here today not saying I'm guilty, not having a guilty conscience at all. I'm innocent. Before Festus, he says the same thing. I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But that was his accusation against that. Before Agrippa, he says, having obtained help from God... I stand this day testifying both to the small and the great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ would suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He'd be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. It's a message of the Gospel is what He says. He says Jesus is the, the hope, and He is come. He's lived a perfect life. He, they crucified Him upon the cross, but that crucifixion was the means of our forgiveness. Because when He died, He rose again from the dead, and we can come to God through Jesus. And that's everything that the Old Testament has, has preached. I delivered you with the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised again according to the Scriptures. When in Rome... Under house arrest, under a different occasion, Paul was trying to persuade the Jews concerning Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. In other words, he's going through his Old Testament and saying, oh yeah, I remember that prophecy. Remember in, in Psalm 22, that's prophesying of Jesus. And, and remember the, the law of Moses talked about another prophet would be here. Hey, remember this new covenant he talked about in Jeremiah 33? That's what's come about. Remember the Davidic covenant that's built about through Jesus and always just taking the old covenant like the forefathers did, bringing it to Jesus. And Paul says, I am serving with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. I think it's a, an allusion there to his suffering because he's just in, in, in prison, just thinking it over and thinking it over and thinking it over. I think about these people who are in life, life row or, or stand, sitting in jail for a long time. You know, these, these people, these American hikers have been, they're in the news, have been accused of spying. They're in an Iranian jail someplace. I'm sure that they're just sitting there in that jail thinking, I'm, I'm innocent, and I'm, why, and here's why, and, and we were just hiking, and how is this? And just thinking their, their course, their, their case, again, again, again is mine. And I think that's what's on Paul. Paul's heart is just saying, I'm innocent, Timothy. And that's helpful for Timothy to know. Because Paul was suffering greatly, but he's suffering greatly with a clear conscience. And Paul says, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 8. But we'll get to that next week. 
we're looking here about Paul having a thankful heart, even though suffering with a pure heart. I mean, it's one thing if you suffer when you, you sin, right? When you, when you sin and then the consequences come upon you. But if you're righteous in your suffering, that's something altogether different. And Paul, even in his righteous suffering, was thankful. And that ought to encourage Paul's heart, or Timothy's heart as well. I mean, if Paul gave thanks to God where he is and what he's experiencing, then certainly Timothy ought to have a thankful heart. I mean, you compare, do you want to be Paul or do you want to be Timothy? I mean, do you want to be in a, in a dungeon, right, with no sewer, stinky, filthy, dark? Or do you want to be Timothy pastoring a church? Some might say Paul is better, all right? But I'd rather be where Timothy is, alive and well out, just facing the criticisms of people, trying to lead people to Christ. And yet here was Paul in this dungeon, thankful. Brings things into perspective, brings encouragement. Now before we move on, I do want to just make one exegetical comment here about how Paul says thanks. He's not thanking Timothy, he's thanking God. He's not saying, Timothy, I'm thankful for all that you have done. Rather, he's saying, I'm thankful to God for all that He has done. And I say there's a world of difference between the two, between thanking people and thanking God for people. Do you know the difference? When you thank someone for what they have done, it's well and good. I don't think it's wrong. But it can put a subtle pressure upon them to do more. It hints of conditional love. But when you thank God for the work in someone's life, what do you do? You rejoice in God's grace, turns attention to the Lord, turns attention to how God is bigger and working in us, helps us to see even the trials that are coming our way, helps us to see a bigger picture. And by the way, you can look long and hard throughout all of Paul's epistles. You will never find him in the epistles thanking anyone. Every time he gives thanks, he gives thanks to God. Romans 8, 1, 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.3 I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1.3 We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. And on and on and on it goes always giving thanks to God for the situation. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't say to someone thank you. I don't think that's wrong. But I would encourage you to think about inserting God there it just brings God into the equation. I thank God for you. I thank God for what you've done for me. I, I thank God for what you've given me. I thank God for the kindness that you've shown me. Puts a twist, shows God's grace in your life, brings depth and clarity into your statements. And I just say this, never underestimate the power of an expression of thanks to someone who's discouraged. It, it like gives some some worth, it gives some health, it gives some hope that, that, that there's someone else who is appreciative of me. I just say thankful people are always enjoyable to be around. This, um, this week we had someone, a uh, little child, in our home from the church. Actually, we've had several. Our, church, our home has been more like a zoo these past couple of days. We've had some. Um, but I just want to point out Caleb Mitchell. I just appreciate how you were thankful. Very subtle. I mean, I'm not... But he just said thank you on several occasions to us. And it makes it so much more pleasant to be around. And you just want to encourage someone, you just be thankful and you can be encouragement, Caleb, like you were to me. Okay. Well, that's one way to encourage the discouraged. Point number one, express your thankfulness. Secondly, Paul dealt on his relationship here in verse 4. 
with uh, Timothy just expressing I was longing there. And so the way I put it, the point is desire your relationship. Desire your relationship. That is, that is long for your relationship with someone else. Because see, when someone is discouraged, you think about it, if they're in your home, you have a child that's discouraged, disappointed with something, what do you do? I know what I often do is just put my arm around, hug, affirm my love for my child, kiss them on the cheek, do whatever I can. Just, just be there saying that, you know what, yeah, there are trials, whether it's my sin and I apologize, I confess that, whether it's something else, and I just, I love you and I care for you and your relationship is important. And that's a way to encourage people too. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying that your relationship, Timothy, to me, is important. Now, he's limited. He's in jail. Timothy, many miles away, pastoring the church in Ephesus. He can't put his arms around Timothy, but he desires to do that. That's what verse 4 speaks about. Timothy, I'm longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Verses packed with emotion. There's longing that's an emotion word. There's tears. That's an emotion word. There's joy. That's an emotion word. Here's Paul longing to see Timothy. Epipotheo is the Greek word for that. It's difficult to, to communicate. It's a, an intense longing. And, and it can be a right longing here, um, as it is. Um, but it can be a bad longing too. A sinful longing, which is described in 2 Timothy 2.22 as lust. But here is a, a lust, a longing for another person in a non-sinful way. He has a deep longing to see Timothy one last time before he's martyred. Chapter 4, verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Chapter 4, verse 21, make every effort to come to me before winter. Maybe sending Tychicus to Ephesus, like chapter 4, verse 12 says, was a way of smoothing the path. So here's another faithful worker for ours. Maybe he can take over in your church for a while, and so Timothy, you can come to me. Maybe that was the importance of that. We're not sure. But he wants Timothy to be with him because he knows how Timothy's going to be a tonic for his soul. He knows that when Timothy comes, Paul will be filled with joy just seeing him again. And you know what that's all about. You haven't seen a good friend for a long time. Maybe you communicate a little bit, but then what happens when you get to see each other? It's great joy, right? We're on vacation in California. We got to see uh, some friends in California and hadn't seen them for a while, but when we got together with them, it was a joyous time. Right, kids? Was it a joyous time? Was it really fun, Stephanie? Yeah, just uh, you haven't seen them for a while. You're long because when you're together, then you're filled with joy. Because you've missed them, right? It's the, the proverb. It's not a real proverb. It's just whatever. Absence makes the heart grow fond or something like that. Right? When you're gone away, you realize what you're lacking. You've got friends. We realize what we're lacking. And then finally we get to be with them and enjoy our time with them. That's what Paul is saying. You're apart from me, but I value our relationship and I long for you to be with me here as I'm ready to be executed for my faith. Emotions are high. And Paul's emotions are high and Timothy's emotions are high. And they're high with affection for each other. It says here in verse 4, Even as I recall your tears. Now, we don't know what occasions these tears, but I do believe that they are tears of pain. Maybe Paul is talking about being uh, departing from each other. If you remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul called the elders of Ephesus, Timothy may have been there, to Miletus. He gave his last counsel to them. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20. And then 
they departed, and the departing scene is very tender. They began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kiss him and grieve especially over the word which he had spoken. They would not see his face again. Just tears falling at, at the separation. Paul, I'm never going to see you again. We are, you're not coming back ever to Ephesus. You've meant so much to us. That may have been the time with Timothy, or it may have been another time which they needed to part from one another. I remember your tears as you, as you went away because of the, the affection relationship. And that encourages someone when, when you're remembering that relationship and say, that's what we have. Or maybe Paul was even referring here to the tears that came through the trials of the church. See, when you love people deeply, they can hurt badly. When attacks come, they can hurt. I've known both of these ministry tears. I've cried when people have left this church. Um, those of you who are around, remember when Jake Schwartz left this church? Um, several times I cried here from the pulpit here at Rockford Christian High School. Just Sunday mornings, just he was a dear friend. He was a Timothy to me. And through circumstances, he left. Went back to California, went to Russia. That's painful. And you saw it. Or those of you who remember when Gordy Bell left the church going down south. You remember I was preaching one time. And I don't know, I was just going to tell a short little story. It probably took five minutes to tell that story because in light of my sobs, just all that that represents because Gordy is such a good friend of mine and so faithfully stood with me and by me. It's hard. I know the tears of departure. I know the tears of the trial of the church. The first decade of my marriage... Avon never saw me cry. Never, ever. Because there weren't a lot of reasons to cry. In the last decade of marriage, through some experience of the church, there have been several times when I've been in tears in our bedroom. I'm not sure if the kids have seen that, but just, just pain of things that Timothy has faced. It's the pains of ministry. And Paul's acknowledging those pains and saying, I see those pains, I sympathize with those pains, and I long for you to be with me. And I think that's an encouragement for him as well. So ways you can encourage the discouraged is to express your thankfulness to God for them. You can desire your relationship with them, to desire to be there. And thirdly, remember God's work. Pull this from verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Now these words are, 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 are Paul's remembering Timothy growing up. Remembering his testimony of saving faith. It draws us back to the time when Paul first met Timothy. Recorded in Acts chapter 16. Paul says here, Luke records for us, Acts 16.1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Implication, not a believer. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, we can't say this for sure, but the implication is that Timothy's father was not a believer. He was a Greek. He was not a follower of the law, because Timothy was not circumcised. He didn't put Timothy under the law. And Paul's emphasis here in chapter 1, verse 5, upon the women in his life leads us to believe that Timothy's father was not a, not a spiritual influence in his life. 
Look at Sarah. It says, I'm mindful of sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Here it is. He says, you have a faith. I'm remembering this sincere faith. I am mindful that it is in you. You have found faith in the Messiah. And that ought to be a huge encouragement to those of you who are raising kids without a dad or with unbelieving fathers. And we have several families like that here in our church. Husbands are not believers. In some cases, they're not even around the home. They're out. Other cases, they live but are not spiritually engaged, the kids at all. Take encouragement, women, mothers, from the life of Timothy. Apparently, this father had no, um, little or no, nothing to do with his own spiritual upbringing. He was trained by his mother and his grandmother. In verse 3, Paul looked back to his forefathers. And in verse 5, Timothy's looking back to the four mothers. Paul is in Timothy's life. And they weren't passive. No, they were very active in Timothy's life. I mean, turn over to chapter 3. You can see how active they were. Chapter 3, the thought begins in verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There are evil men out there. There are fakes and charlatans. And they're going to continue from bad to worse. going to keep getting worse and worse. But you, however, he says in verse 14, don't follow those. Don't go from bad to worse, right? But you... Continue in the things that you have learned. Right? Continue in the things that your grandmother taught you and continue in the things that your mother taught you and press on in that straight path. You've learned them. You've become convinced of them. Knowing from who you've learned them, you've learned them from your family. You've seen the integrity of your parent, of your mother and your grandmother. You've even seen me, perhaps he's talking about. Maybe you've seen other godly people in the church. Continue in those things. And then he says, verse 15, particularly talking about from mom, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Just think about how it is that Timothy came to know and believe. It's because mom and grandma homeschooled Timothy. Okay, <laughs> Whatever, he was probably off at Sabbath school or something. I'm just making a joke there in some sense. But, but here it is. Mom and uh, Grandma are teaching him in the homes. In the home. Whenever he has opportunity. So moms, I just encourage you to teach your children. And what were they teaching? They're teaching the Scriptures. Teaching the sacred writings. Verse 15. And the sacred writings there is referring to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's going back to chapter 1, verse 3, where he's talking about, I have a clear conscience serving God the way my forefathers did. Because it's the Old Testament which gives insight and pushes on to believe in Jesus. And Timothy, growing up, you heard nothing about Jesus the Messiah because we don't know exactly when Timothy was born, but by the time the second missionary journey came and Paul was there, it was whatever... 50 A.D. maybe. That was 20 years after Jesus died. Maybe, maybe Timothy was born right when Jesus died. We don't know exactly the dynamics of that, but Timothy certainly was trained in the Old Testament Scriptures. Lots of New Testament Scriptures weren't even written, but then they talk about Jesus. And eventually he got there by believing in Jesus. But it took a lot of hard work. It took some dedication from mom and grandma. So take heart, mothers with absent fathers. 
Take heart in Timothy and show your children that God is more glorious than the marital difficulties that we have or the marital situation we have. Live above that and show them the joy of the Scriptures. Never underestimate the power of Scriptures and the lives of your children. The Scriptures will make a powerful impact even in light of a spiritually absent dad. So don't despair. Train your children in the ways of the Lord. Trust Him. It's not an easy work, but it bore fruit in Timothy's life. It may bear fruit in your life. But now I'm talking to you fathers, though, who are here and who have children, or you grandfathers who have grandchildren. Do everything you can, grandfathers, by the way, to help and support your children in their teaching the ways of the Lord. But you fathers, know that, know that a dad can make a great impact in people's lives. Um, John MacArthur tells a story that he was involved one time with a well-known ministry in the United States. They're searching for a leader. I, I think it was Moody Bible Institute looking for the next president before Joe Stoll became president there. And, and John MacArthur was on the board and uh, they're trying to decide who's going to be the next president, I think after Sweeting retired. And so they're just considering and eight names were placed before these men. And John MacArthur looked at these eight names and he said, gentlemen, do you see a common denominator in every single one of these names? And when nobody responded, he said, did you notice that every one of these eight names you've put before us here had a well-known godly preacher for a father? Without exception, he said. Now, it wasn't that they went out and said one of the requirements of being president of Moody Bible Institute would be that you had a father who was a well-known preacher or pastor. But it speaks, though, the benefits of having a heritage of godly men that made such men, these eight men, stand out above their peers because of the godly heritage that they had. And there are exceptions, certainly. There is a, a Paul who was a Saul, who was a blasphemer against God. He was a, a violent aggressor. He was a murderer. And yet he found grace and became great in the, the eyes of God and in the eyes of the church. But there is something as well for a godly heritage that just helps children to grow up to be bold. I do not believe it's an accident. The Lord has greatly blessed John MacArthur. He's a fifth generation preacher. Charles Spurgeon also came from a godly line of pastors. One of the most gifted men the world has ever known. Over in England, died in 1892. And, and, and God is partial to a godly heritage. So the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. That is, the, the kindness of God is everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant, remember His precepts to do them. In other words, God is a favor upon those who love the Lord and seek to follow Him. Well, in verse 5 here, chapter 1, we see the emphasis on Timothy's faith. I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. That is an unhypocritical faith. That is a genuine faith. That is a, a faith that was pure and had nothing to hide. Paul says, I know this faith is in you. says that in the end of verse 5. Now, again, you got to think about why is Paul telling Timothy, I remember your faith and I'm sure you have a faith. Well, Again, I think it's because of an indication of a little bit of the troubles going on in Timothy's heart. I think Timothy's so discouraged that he's even doubting his faith. That's what I believe. 
He's doubting whether he really believes in God, whether he really believes in the Gospel. And Paul comes along and says, Timothy, you're the real deal. I've seen evidences of faith in your life. Now, he didn't elaborate on it here, but you say, how do you know that Timothy's faith is real? I'm sure if he was pressed, Paul would not have said, well, I remember that day when we sat down there in Lystra and you bowed your knee and you prayed that sinner's prayer and you said, Jesus, come into my heart. And that's well and good. But Paul wouldn't have said, oh, do you remember that prayer you prayed? You're a Christian? I mean, he didn't say, yeah, remember that prayer you prayed and then, and then I gave you that little card that says you're a Christian and so you've got it. Don't you have that in your pocket? That's not what he would have said. Don't ever look for your assurance of your faith based upon some decision or prayer you prayed. Rather, he would have said, Timothy, I know your faith is real because I've seen it. Remember when I picked you up in Lystra. Then we traveled on a missionary journey, eventually landing in Philippi. And Timothy, I know that was a difficult place there in Philippi. Silas and I were thrown in prison. Remember, that's where the jailer was converted. And you, I saw your faith and trust in God that you stood right there beside us the whole time. You were right there ready to serve us in however we could. Those are hard times, but you believe through that. Through the difficulties of trial, you just calmly entrusted every to travel. You entrust yourself to the Lord. In fact, I remember that we went to Berea. You remember what happened there, Timothy? Silas and I were banished from the city because they thought we were troublemakers. And yet, that's because we were vocal. Or I was vocal anyway, but I left Silas, you, and Timothy, I left you back in Berea to serve and minister and you, you guys did serve and minister. And I hear how you endured in the faith in a difficult circumstance. When they kicked me out of town, you stayed behind and did a faithful job, Timothy. I remember that. And then I remember when you came to Corinth and you joined up with us and, and you worked with your hands enough so that you and Silas worked so that I, Paul, I could... I could be freed up full-time for the ministry. That means, Timothy, you gave a third of your income to me. And so did Silas. And so we all lived on two-thirds of what two of you guys made so that I could preach the Gospel all the time. Timothy, I see the, the faith in you. And even in Corinth, where, where I feared for my life and I thought about leaving, it was only divine revelation that told me to stay there because God said He had many people in this city. We stayed there and things were difficult there. And, and now you're in Ephesus. And I know of the trials in Ephesus when people have deserted and people have been false. But I've seen you stay true. Timothy, I know the sincere faith within you. That's how Paul would have argued. Said, yes, Timothy, I see the sincere faith within you. Not some prayer that was prayed. Oh, that may have been how he started. But that's how he continued on. And I say, here's what Paul is doing. Think about what he's doing with Timothy. He's noticing the working of God in his life. And I just tell you, church family, you can do that as well. Uh, we've called that before identifying the evidence of grace in people's life. When you see someone filled with joy, tell them, I see what God is doing in your life, that you have terrible circumstances, but you're filled with joy in this circumstance. Tell, them of, tell people of the way that you've seen that their faith in action. Well, I'm thankful to God the way that you, you persevered in faith, that you're persevering through this trial. That's a huge encouragement to me. Tell them the ways that you've observed their boldness in speaking the Gospel. God has given you a boldness to speak the Gospel to those people. I'm so encouraged by that. Tell them the times and they're a blessing of God in your life. 
Tell them the ways in which you witnessed their love for other people or, or how you saw other ways of God working in their life. And then watch encouragement on their faces as you speak to that. In fact, I, I just tell you, when I have spoken to people that way, I'm thankful to God for what He is doing in your life. The ways in which you're learning from Him and growing through Him. And I know that things aren't easy for you, but you're just growing and trusting Him. And You know, you are such an encouragement to me because I see God being true even when life is difficult in your life. If I talk with people like that, you know what happens to their faces? They just get really big and they're encouraged. Not, it's not, hey, look how good I'm doing, but look, God is working in me. And you can do that as well, and that's exactly what Paul was doing, remembering God's work in the past. It's the end of point three there. So, you want to encourage or discourage, right? Express your thankfulness, desire your relationship, remember God's work in the past, and then... Point number four, remind of God's gifts for a future ministry. Remind them of God's gifts. Remind them that they have enough to continue to press on. Look at verses six and seven. He says in verse six, for this reason, right, because he's got a genuine faith, because we have this relationship that we're longing, we've got to be thankful to God. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Verse 6 right there is where I derive the first part of the theme of 2 Timothy. Fan the flame. The ESV says that, right? Fan the flame. Kindle afresh the gift of God. What Paul is saying to Timothy is you've got these gifts that God has given you, so blow on them and use them. Let the fire of God burn in your, in your bones. So in order for a fire to burn, right, you need three elements. Kids, you know what three elements you need to have fire to burn? Yes, Nathan, of course, nature boy. Oxygen, fuel, and heat. Good job. You need those three things. That's what you need to have a fire burn. If you lack any of those, it's not going to burn. I mean, if you have fuel and heat apart from oxygen, it doesn't work. Fuel and oxygen, like we have all the time, doesn't burn. You need to have all three of those. And as the fuel burns, oftentimes what happens, it creates the heat to continue the burning. So we need to fan the flame with the oxygen so it keeps burning. Otherwise, we, we simmer. And Paul told Timothy, God has given you the fuel to burn white hot for Him, but the heat isn't in your life. So get the oxygen and the fire. Start fanning that. And then watch, your, watch you burn for His glory. Now, you know how a fire needs tending. You have a fireplace, you know what I mean, right? You, you leave the logs there for a while, they burn pretty well, and then they, they simmer down. And they don't burn so well. And so you stir them up again. You poke them with a poker, or you fan them with a fan, or you put some bellows on there, and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, pretty soon, they're up and going again. And that's what Paul tells Timothy to do. And I, I just say that that's, that's true of all of us. Our fires need to be prodded. Our fires need to be poked because our, our normal plan is just to let things sit and to die and wither down. And we need to constantly kindle up, kindle aflame the, the gift of God which is in us. And you say, how do you do that? Well, I, I think the, the Word of God in prayer. You need input. You need something fresh coming in. That's the idea of the oxygen. God has given us all the substance. He's given us all the gifts. We need to just hear from Him and speak with Him. The Word of God in prayer. Now, Timothy had some type of supernatural gift. He said, this gift came through the laying on of my hands. 
I'm not sure exactly what that is. It's spoken about in First Timothy as well. I think it was just a special gift that God gave His ordination. He said, yes, Timothy, we're setting you apart for the gospel ministry, laying His hands on there, supernatural enablement from, from God. And there's Timothy seeking to fan that up. And it says in verse 7, though, that this gift, God has given us these things. He's given us one thing He hasn't given us, but three things He has given us. Look, first of all, it says, God, verse 7, has not given us a spirit of timidity. Timidity, oftentimes translated fear. He's not given us a shrinking back nature. He's called us to be bold like the early church. Darren read for us earlier. Right? Remember that? When the early church leaders saw the confidence of Jesus, they saw just this boldness that they had for Him. That They were speaking boldly. I mean, as Darren was reading that, I was thinking about Acts 4, that Paul is preaching this message about you crucified Jesus. And he was standing before Ananias and Caiaphas, the same people who had condemned Jesus to death. He's talking to them and said, you were wrong in crucifying this man. I mean, is that bold or what? I mean, they killed Jesus. Why aren't they going to kill you? And by God's grace, they didn't. But they were bold as a lion, as Proverbs 28 Verse 1 says, He said we can't stop speaking because God has given us this. We don't have a spirit of filler. We don't have a spirit of timidity because we can't stop thinking. Now, many people at this point in verse 7 try to characterize Timothy as this super shy, super timid, super fearful guy. Kind of like the guy who's in the corner just scared. You know, it's wallflowers, not going to talk with anybody. I'm not sure that's the case. I think Timothy is struggling with something that everybody struggles with. Um, we're going to be having a pastor's training conference here uh, this week, Wednesday and Thursday. And I had a meeting this past week talking with several of the pastors, um, one of whom was Bob Bixby from Morningstar Church. And we're just working through Second Timothy in preparation because we're going to be going through Second Timothy in that group together. As so we're talking about it, I, I just said, you know, I, I see myself as Timothy. I mean, I, I view myself... Yeah, there's some way where I'm an extrovert, but many ways, I'm telling you, I am an introvert and I am timid and I'm not as bold as I need to be. And I, when I read what Paul is saying here to Timothy, I think, I feel God's Word just talking straight to Steve Brandon. It's just, because I am Timothy. And so, when I think of Timothy, I think of him like, constituted made up like me. But it was very interesting at that, that time, Bob Bixby was there and for those of you who know him, he and my personalities are, are, okay, we're polar opposites, okay? <laughs> He's just a, a, bold, a bold guy who just says it all, says it like it is. He, he, he's told me many times, I know my personality rubs a lot of people the wrong way, and he's just kind of out there in your face as kind of the guy he is. And uh, was very interesting to me, very helpful to me, as he said, I feel like I'm Timothy too. And that was, that was helpful to me because here was Bob and me. Bob says, yeah, there are times where I'm ashamed. And there are other things in Timothy that talk about don't be quarrelsome. And Bob says, well, I, I tend to be more quarrelsome. Maybe, maybe that, I'm, I'm Timothy. But we, we don't have a full picture of Timothy. And maybe God in His providence has not given us a full picture of Timothy because He wants all pastors to be Timothy. And He wants all people to be Timothy because he understands all of us are called to be bold, but all of us, by the way, are timid and ashamed. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Ashamed of the gospel? We're not speaking up like you ought to speak. 
think Timothy knew that. I think all of us know that. In fact, the big theme for next week is going to be ashamed. It says in verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. It says in chapter 12, Paul says, I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And then he commends in verse 16, Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. But see, there can be the shame of Jesus and, and suffering and we're following this, this dead leader who we say is alive, everyone else thinks dead, but we, we follow this leader who actually gave his life and died. And, and we're following leaders like Paul who's in prison. I mean, who wants to follow a prisoner today? You can be ashamed of that very easily. And Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Right? Instead, He's given us boldness. And that's what the last three are. He's given us a power and love and discipline. He's given us a spirit of power. That is, He's given us enablement. He's given us ability. It says in 2 Peter 1.3 that God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We all have everything we need. There are some who think, that, oh, I, I, I don't have enough. I need something else. Or I need something else. And God says, no. His divine nature has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. All of you have everything you need to live a life godly in Christ Jesus. You have it. And what God has given us is sufficient to live rightly. And when temptations come our way, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with that temptation, we'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The temptation to come, God has enabled us, empowered us to have a way out. He's given us power. He's given us love. Which, by the way, is crucial to the ministry. It's crucial for you all as you minister to other people. Love people. Love people. I'm learning from Karen Looney how to love people. Where are you, Karen? I'm not sure. There, there you are, Karen. <laughs> Where's Karen? Where's Karen? I can't. Karen just loves people. I need to know more of that. But God is... Look at this. It's not that I need to love. It's that God has given me the love I need to share that with others. And He's given us discipline or He's given us self-control. It's every way your translation says it. A sound judgment. A soberness. And I just say, all this is needed in ministry. There is, there's so much to do. There's so much opposition, conflicting things, especially Paul with Timothy in chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bond service must not be quarrelsome, but be self-controlled and not be self-interested. And there's so much there that we need. Just discipline to get everything done. Just self-controlled so as not to go in the excess of sin and how to respond to people as well. And God has given that. It's not that I need to generate that. And God has given it to you as well. Because He's given to us these things. Well, you want to encourage the discouraged? Everyone into encouraging? Say yes. Express your thankfulness. Desire your relationship. Remember God's working in the past. And remind of God's gift for future ministry. So let me pray and entrust these words to the Lord. Father, I pray that You would take these things and encourage us today. That's what Paul did with Timothy. So we see that here. And would pray, even as he's going to turn here in chapter 1, verse 8, really about how we need to fight the fight, how we need to not be ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, give us a holy boldness as we step through this wonderful book over the next several months. God, to stir in our hearts greatly of love towards you. And would pray, God, that we would, would realize the blessings of relationship, the power that we have to encourage. And 
Paul encouraged Timothy, may we encourage each other as well to press on in this life filled with disappointments and sorrows and heartache and regret. And yet those things are the very things that cause us to look to Jesus. So help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.